there can be very little doubt on the mind of Bible-believing Christians that it's starting to get darker and is going to get darker and darker and darker, and that Bible-believing Christians will be facing more difficult days ahead. And in fact, we have entered into a period of persecution of Christians throughout Europe and in the West and in the United States. We have been a lighthouse. We have been a powerhouse. We have been a light and help to all the suffering Christians around the world. But that's changing. We're entering into a time of experiencing discrimination, alienation, and harassment. Bible believing Christians in the West are facing and will be facing difficult time. Some already have openly, and it's in the media, it's in the news, have openly called for the denial of the First Amendment rights to Christians. It's in the press. Sadly, this is going to get worse in the coming years. In fact, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking People like me who dreamed as a young boy of coming to America, the land of freedom and the land of liberty, and and I was thinking about how Christians are persecuted around the world. And back in the 60s and the 70s, so many Christian dissidents in the Soviet Union. Remember the Soviet Union? (laughs) And they were sentencing them to Siberia. And this particular Christian man who was being sentenced to Siberia, after he asked, he said, now, Our media have been telling us that America is a terrible place. America is a dreadful place to live in. Can you send me there? (laughs) And so we're about to prepare this generation and the next generation mentally, physically, morally, and in every way. And the way we do this, we can learn from the Christians who have been persecuted for hundreds of years, hundreds of years. For example, in the last 1,400 years in the Middle East, persecuted Christians learned how to train generation after generation after generation how to be strong in the face of persecution. I know experientially, not only through biblical training, but practical training as well, how to stand in the face of blatant opposition. For example, many Christians in persecuted land know that their children, for example, will have a hard time. In fact, they will not be accepted in some schools, so they open Christian schools. They know that the next generation is going to find it difficult to get a job because just simply their name is a Christian. And so they started training the next generation on how to start a small business. And through the years, some of these Christians who have started little businesses, now they have giant businesses, believe it or not, and they're able to employ people who would never be employed anywhere else simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But perhaps there is no group of people, there is no greater group of people who have been experiencing persecution and suffering and discrimination for thousands of years like the Jewish people. This is not political. This is just not born out of history, but it's in the Scripture, very clearly in the Scripture. So, 
Now I want you to turn with me to Psalm 129. This is one of the psalms called the Psalm of Ascent, and the most unusual psalm of all, where most nations look back at their history and they would brag about their achievements. They enumerate their achievements, their accomplishments. (laughs) Here, Israel reflects on what they had survived. (laughs) To the average reader, if you read the psalm casually, you can say it's almost bordering on paranoia. (laughs) But when you understand Israel's history, it is not strange at all. The Jews are the longest enduring ethnic people on the planet Earth. While Christians persecuted or experienced persecution in different parts of the world for 2,000 years, they have been experiencing persecution for nearly 4,000 years. Jewish persecution throughout the years, we've seen them in history. They've been slammed, they've been hated, they've been expelled, they've been pursued, they've been murdered throughout their existence, but yet they survived intact. And that is why, if I would have a title for this message for this generation and the next, is to say, learn from Israel. Learn from Israel. Let me illustrate of what I'm trying to say. In the latter part of the 1800s, Frederick the Great, King Frederick the Great, was the king of Prussia. And one day, he was having a discussion with his chaplain. Now, King Frederick the Great was greatly impacted, was greatly influenced by the French skeptic Voltaire. And he became skeptic about the Christian faith, even though the tradition at the time and they all do the church stuff, but he was really skeptical of the Christian faith. And so he asked his chaplain one day in the conversation, he said, if the Bible really is true, it ought to be able to defend itself with a brief proof. But instead, you have these volumes and volumes and volumes of books that defend the Bible. I don't have time to read. He said, if the Bible is from God, it should be illustrated simply. And I don't have time for long debates and arguments. And the chaplain answered, he said, Your Majesty, Your Majesty, it is possible for me to answer the question for simple proof with one word. And the king sarcastically asked him, he said, what is that magic word? The chaplain answered, Israel. And the story goes that the king was absolutely silent. He had no recourse. The intent of the chaplain's argument is found in Psalm 129. The survival of the Jewish folks The Jewish people, in spite of centuries, even millennia of persecution, is a clear proof that the Scripture is true. Nothing can explain the Jewish survival other than the sovereign will of God and their tenacious commitment to God. The same thing can be said about faithful Christians throughout the world, throughout the 2,000-year history, whether in Rome or in Africa or in Asia or in the Middle East, wherever it may be for the last 2,000 years. 
Psalm 129 is the type of psalm where the song leader, whom they call a cantor, he's really the music leader, and the cantor would recite one word, and then the people would recite the same word after him, repeat that word. Look with me, please, in verses 1 and 2. Let me be the cantor and you be the congregation, okay? The worshipers. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say, Israel youth is the time when they came into their own as a nation in the middle of the slavery of Egypt. For 400 years, they experienced pain and suffering and slavery before God delivered them. That is considered to be the time of Israel's youth. In fact, the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea, in chapter 11, verse 1, he talks about that. He said, the Lord speaking through him, he said, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. In fact, that is why Matthew, the writer of the gospel, he sees the fulfillment of that very prophecy in Jesus when he escaped into Egypt for a period of time, and God said, out of Egypt I called my son. In other words, Matthew is saying that Israel was the son that was not obedient to God, but Jesus is the son who's obedient, in whom this prophecy of Hosea completely fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. After years of slavery under Pharaoh, yet they kept on going anyway. (laughs) When Pharaoh failed to cull their numbers, he began to kill every newborn male. But God protected Moses, and he raised him up to be his instrument to deliver them from slavery. But it was not only in—watch these words—it was not only in their use that they were oppressed— but from the youth they've been oppressed. In the youth, but also from that time on they've been oppressed. From the youth, the psalmist writes. Most of you know biblical history, and I'm not going to repeat it. From the earliest days to the day of the writing of this psalm, they were harassed and persecuted by the Philistines, by the Assyrians, by the Moabites, by the Ammonites, by the Edomites, and all the mosquito bites. In fact, the prophet Amos names the big cities that were designed and had strategy to oppress and destroy Israel, and he names the city Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, to mention just a few. And yet, they all were judged for dealing treachery and wanton destruction. All of the nations were judged. Later on, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and took some of the Jews into exile in Babylon. They were followed by the Greeks and the Romans. (laughs) And in the Middle Ages, the European powers expelled them from their territories and confined them into ghettos. And it's still fresh in our memories, the Nazis who sought to exterminate them. 
will my Israel say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. They may oppress me from my they have not gained the victory. This, my beloved, ought to be the testimony of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. They, that means no one, no one, no one will ever have victory over the remnant of Christ. <laughs> Satan can do his worst. Secular media can sharpen their swords. The government officials may unleash an anti-God forces. The schools may discriminate against the morally righteous. The workplace may be intolerant of believers. Some may lose their jobs because of the righteous standing, but none, 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 none will have the victory over the elect of God. This is a word from the Lord, not just for some of you, but for all of you. The second stanza of the psalm is what the theologians give it a big word called im, that's I am, purgatory, imprecatory, prayer. The word purgatory means prayer. That's all it means. When you add the letters I am in front of it, it becomes prayer against prayer against. That is a prayer asking God to judge all those who hate and oppress God's people. Beloved, would you please listen to me? This is very important because I can tell you some of these modern Bible commentators, you see them literally from the pages of their commentaries. You see them squirming, and you see them wiggling, and you see them kind of playing a mental gymnastics and say, oh, but Jesus said in Matthew 5, we are to pray for our enemies and those who persecute us. There is no contradiction here. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. This passage is not a contradiction to the spirit of what Jesus taught us in Matthew 5. He's not talking about vindictiveness or taking vengeance or judgmental attitude. No. There is no contradiction between the Old and the New Testament. Amen. Of course, we are to pray for our enemies. And Jesus commands us that. He doesn't suggest it. He commands us to pray for our enemies. In fact, Jesus explained this command in Matthew chapter 5, particularly verse 45. In verse 45, he says, do this because of what theologians call common graces. What's that common graces? Well, the sun shines upon the righteous and the unrighteous. The rain falls for the righteous and the unrighteous. Because of these common graces, therefore, we need to pray for our enemies. That's what our Lord is telling us. But that does not mean that God will not judge the wicked in due course. He will. Every time we pray and say, Your kingdom come, Thy will be done, Thy kingdom come, we are saying, God, judge the evil and the wicked. 
Every time we say, Thy kingdom come, we are praying that God would judge the wicked people. Listen to me. Jesus is not saying that we should not want justice to take place or that we should not want to see justice of God on His enemies. No. So how should we pray for our enemies? Well, first of all, we need to pray for them to be converted. We need to pray for them to repent. We need to pray for them to turn away from their wickedness and receive Christ as Savior. We pray for them to cease from their evil. As we are seeing in the ministry of leading the way all over the world, people who were terrorists, people who were persecuting Christians have become the children of the living God. That's what we need to pray. But if they do not repent, if they do not turn from their wicked ways, if they do not turn from their enmity to God and His people, then we don't pray for them to prosper in their wickedness. That is a screwed-up thinking on the part of so-called progressive Christians. We do not pray for them to succeed in their evil. That's not what our Lord is telling us. We do not pray for them to be blessed in their wickedness so that they may be more wicked. No. We pray as the disciples did in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 29. Lord, look upon the threat and grant your servants continually to speak your word in boldness and in courage, with courage. Spurgeon, one of my great heroes of yesteryear, a great preacher, the prince of preachers, he's basically making a comment about those who are flim-flams. That's not his words, they're mine. The flip-floppers, the weak-kneed theologians. Again, this is my words, that we should not pray imprecatory prayer. Here's what he said. If this is imprecation, let it stand, for our heart says amen to it. <laughs> That's how I love that man. <laughs> it is but justice for those who hate, harass, and hunt the godly should come to naught. And then he continues, those who confuse right with wrong ought to be confounded. How can we wish prosperity to those who would destroy that which is the dearest to our hearts? And I would say amen belongs here. Amen. The reason our Lord told us to pray for our enemies, first and foremost, that they would be converted. But secondly, He's telling us not to take matters into our own hands. We don't take matters into our hands, but we go to Him. No wonder he said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And let me tell you, I lived long enough to know this, that his vengeance is far stronger, far better, far more powerful than you can ever dream. For a number of years, we have been sold a bill of goods and been given a picture of a milk-toast Jesus, a weak and helpless Jesus, and says that we need to be like that. They fail to recognize that the glorified Jesus in heaven right now, the book of Revelation gives us a picture 
of a glorified Jesus, a sword coming out of his mouth, big tattoos out in his thigh, and riding a powerful horse. The amazing thing about those who attack the imprecatory portion of this psalm is that they do not understand how mild this is. This is very mild. The psalmist is not asking for God to send the wicked people to hell, which he will, but they're not even asking for that. The psalmist is not asking for that. Or even that they would experience the same amount of suffering that they are dishing or giving out and inflicting on the righteous. He merely asked that their evil design might not prosper. In fact, there are three things here in this imprecatory prayer that I want to share with you. No, that's not a three-point sermon, so don't panic. These are just three things I want to share with you, okay? And if you're taking notes, write them down. In verse 5, he prays that they will not be honored. In verses 6 and 7, he prays that they would not succeed. And in verse 8, he prays that they will not be blessed. Look at them with me very quickly. The honor that the enemy seeks in the Old Testament sense is the honor that comes from military victory, especially if Israel is crushed. And the psalmist is asking for, with all that he's asking for, is for his enemies to be turned back is for the enemy experience shame of defeat. Beloved, we must not, we should not ask for the defeat of the righteous, because I know when two Christians have a disagreement or argument, their temptation is trying to take revenge. He said, no, 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 no. This is only about the wicked and evil people, only upon those who inflict wicked actions on God's people. We should ask for their evil wickedness to be exposed and the righteous be vindicated. Not only that they not be honored, secondly, said verses 6 and 7, that they would not succeed in their plans. The psalmist uses a very quaint but very effective imagery, and you have to understand the Middle East to understand that imagery. It's very unusual. Even though we've seen in some cities like New York and other cities, is what they have, roof garden. That's not what he's talking about. He's praying that that the wicked will be like the grass that falls on a rooftop, which, of course, withers and, and dies before even it begins to blossom. You say, how can the grass grow on rooftop? You've got to understand, these roofs are made of mud, they mud roofs, so if the seeds would fall on them, some will sprout, but not for very long, because the soil is shallow, and there is no provision of water, and therefore those will die instantly. They will not grow into a big harvest. Any grass on the rooftop would quickly die. And the psalmist is asking that the wicked might not even have the smallest chance of succeeding. He wants their plans to shrivel up completely and die, so much so that the reaper would not have enough for a handful or put some harvest under his arm. Question, is it wrong to pray that the efforts 
of the evil ones would not succeed? Is it wrong to pray that their evil and wicked designs would come to naught? The answer is absolutely not. It is not wrong. It is not wrong. It is not wrong. Have you got this? It is not wrong. We have sadly become so tolerant and accepting of evil that they have grown emboldened in the name of compassion, love, and cultural relevance. We are being willingly deceived. You notice I said willingly? John Stott says, preaching man and his merits instead of Christ and his cross, and substituting the one for the other, so that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ, which has become common happening today. First of all, we pray that they would not be honored. Secondly, we pray that they will not And thirdly, verse 8, we pray that they will not be blessed or prosper in their evil designs. This request in verse 8 is connected to the blessing in verse 7. He's connected to that harvest in verse 7. See, in Old Testament times, it was common thing to do is to pray for the harvest and pray for the reapers, those who are working hard to harvest the crop, to bless them as they go. That was a common thing. You see it in the book of Ruth, chapter 2, with Boaz. He was blessing them as they go. But it would be wrong to bless evildoers. To bless evildoers would be betrayal of righteousness and an offense to God. It would be like a nation or somebody in a nation who will cooperate with the enemy. We call them traitors, right? In the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 4, we see a picture of the dragon standing before the woman who's about to give birth so that he may devour the child as soon as he's born. And we know the woman is Israel, and the Messiah, the Son, Jesus, the Christ, was born, came out of Israel. And this is a prophetic picture, my friends. The child is being saved by being snatched by God and being placed on the throne. And that is where Jesus is now. He's on the throne. We know that this is a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, where Satan constantly striking at the heel of Jesus, constantly, constantly, constantly. But praise God, Christ crushed his head. From that moment, Jesus From the moment he was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Satan goaded King Herod not only to go and kill him, kill all the babies in that town. And then all the way to the most unjust, the most criminal act of kangaroo court that sentenced the most, the only perfect sinless Son of God to die on the cross. All the way through, Satan was out to destroy the Son of God. But praise God, on the third day, Jesus rose with every ounce of His omnipotence out of the grave. This is the fulfillment of verse 3 of Psalm 129. Plowman, 
plowed my back and made their furrows long. They scourged the back of our Savior like a farmer plows his field. Isaiah the prophet in 53.5 anticipate this suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, He is pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. Now, beloved, listen to me. Victory that the psalmist is speaking about will never, 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 never go to Satan and his followers. Victory belongs to Jesus and his followers. Revelation eleven fifteen says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And I can't wait to see that. And it's going to happen maybe sooner than we think. Amen. Because Jesus lives, we live also. Because Jesus has been victorious, we shall be victorious too. Because Jesus defeated Satan and evil, we will defeat Satan and evil. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, In this world you'll have troubles. But listen, don't miss that most important part. But, can you say but with me? Take heart, I have overcome the world. The psalmist affirms, they did not gain victory over me. They did not gain victory over me. Let me tell you this as I come to the end, conclude. I am sure that some of you might be asking, why is this pattern of oppression of Israel and then victory? Why is this pattern where our Lord Jesus Christ suffered greatly and then received victory in the resurrection? Why do Christians suffer and persecution and then are given victory? Why? And the answer is found in the Scripture. So that we know that our power is not from ourselves, but from God. You see, that is why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, all the way to 11, could say with confidence, we have this treasure. What treasure is he talking about? The gospel of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Why clay? Why are they not in iron? Why are they not in a safe? Why in jars of clay? To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now, amen belongs here. He said, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our bodies. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that His life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. There is a very forceful Christian battle cry. It's in Latin, and it's placed in the Sinai, where supposedly the burning bush had taken place. It says, yet not consumed. Yet not consumed. Will you say that with me? Yet not 
consumed. God's people may be oppressed, but they are never consumed. And they can cry with the apostle, Thanks be to God, for He has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Praise God. Will you stand up with me as we pray together? Father, Your Word is so beautiful. Your Word is so wonderful. We get into trouble when we start adding to it or detracting from it or pontificate on it. We praise You for Your Word. We thank You for preserving Your Word. And we praise You for this Word of encouragement from Your Word. May Your people around the world and right here experience new victory in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, and in Christ alone. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.